welcome to Meet the Contenders. I'm here with civil rights lawyer Jamie Lynn Cross to discuss our interview of Lee Carter, who's running for Virginia House of Delegates District 50. First of all, to my mind, there's no point in meeting a candidate who isn't running for a district that is flippable and important to reversing dangerous agendas and promoting progressive ones. And Lee Carter, who's running for Virginia House of Delegates District 50, passes both tests for me. First, as we discussed in our episode, Meet Virginia, we desperately need to flip Virginia House of Delegates seats. And the seat Lee is running for, District 50, is a great target. It's comprised of Manassas, where Lee lives, and some slightly further western suburbs. At one time, this was solidly rural Virginia, but slowly the whole area has become DC suburbs or suburbs of suburbs as the area around Tyson's Corner becomes more urban. So, you know, Jamie, you and I have both lived in Northern Virginia and one thing that everyone knows who's spent even a little bit of time there is the traffic there is horrific. Yes. And and one of and one of Lee's important issues is managing that traffic and figuring out better public transit solutions. Yes, and stuff like that is what the state legislature is for. Uh, even historically conservative uh, and even libertarian politicians still want to bring that money for roads to their district, especially in districts like Lee's. I mean, it's almost kind of a truism of politics, like roads and bridges. That's what the government's supposed to do and supposed to do well. And, you know, Lee really wants to help handle that issue, but, you know, not necessarily by building roads, but by but by building transit. And, you know, it, it could really change the game. Although I have to say, I, some of the projects that the greater D.C. area has invested in, you know, didn't really pan out when it came to being able to get ridership or being able to run on a schedule that, you know, made sense for the people of, of the greater DC area. And, you know, another thing that makes it difficult is people aren't necessarily commuting from Manassas to DC. Um, you know, the, 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 the traffic situation is pretty complicated. It is. And speaking of complicated issues and things that don't pan out, isn't there a, a newish uh, metro line? How's that working? Yeah, so the Silver Line has come out into sort of deeper Virginia, and it's been rough. You know, as you're aware, as somebody who's lived in D.C., the metro stops, you know, way too early. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't run often enough, and adding a new line, believe it or not, didn't solve any of those problems. <laughs> those problems <laughs> still exist. And so, you know, if you, wanna, if you want to be a young person who's relying on metro, um, you don't plan on staying out late you know, or even getting caught up at work too late at night because, you know, the metro is going to stop. And, and, and even if it doesn't stop, you might find yourself stuck at a metro stop for 20 minutes. It's just not workable. Yeah. And it's interesting because these types of issues really do bleed into the legislatures in Virginia and Maryland because, as we all know, D.C. is not that big and most people don't actually live in the city. That's right. Um, and, and, and that's exactly the kind of district that, that Lee lives in is, is, is pushed outside of, um, well, not pushed outside of, but, you know, in, in the farther suburbs, actually kind of in your direction, mm -hmm. um, kind of bleeding towards West Virginia. So it, some, of, some of the cultural aspects in, and, and this tension of mm, becoming part of the city but also staying rural, you know, th those are probably issues that you'd be familiar with. They are indeed. So 
one thing that I think is really great about Lee, and I think will would connect with voters here in West Virginia, so I'm hoping it also will in Virginia, is that he's a military veteran. He's a Marine. Yeah, and he also now um, works in IT, you know, works the kind of job that helps him be familiar with, uh, you know, labor issues. So he, he's kind of experienced both sides of those coins. And one thing I really like about veterans in general is they've shown that commitment to public service. You know, sometimes when somebody enters politics, for me, there's a question in my mind, you know, what what are you really here for? Do you just like to see your name on yard signs, you know? Mm-hmm. What is it that you're hoping to accomplish? And, and lots of people can come up with good answers, but there's nothing quite like a service person to have already put their money where their mouth is and to, to show that, you know, making a difference matters to them. And, you know, one of the the places that Lee's service took him was Haiti. And, you know, if you still want to serve the public after that, I think that that's probably a good sign. I think it's a great sign. I, I think it really shows that dedication towards making people's lives better. Uh, I, I think that Lee shows that he really cares about people and he's in this for the right reasons. Um, serving in a place like Haiti, it may not be a combat zone, but it's definitely not easy, uh, to put it mildly. And I am very impressed that he did that work and that he's proud of it and that he wants to continue helping people. You know, this might seem a little bit dark, but when I think about serving in Haiti and disaster relief, I think, you know, with climate change, that might actually be a really important set of skills for our lawmakers to have had, to have dealt with natural disasters, um, because I think that the coastal area of Virginia is going to face serious problems in the near future due to man-made climate change. That's true. Um, and I saw that our uh, the seed vault that's going to save the world almost got flooded, so fingers yeah. crossed. Yeah. <laughs> Some of our backup plans may not, maybe, maybe our, our, our f- first plans pretty soon, so... That situation's a little bit alarming. Um, And, you know, one of the things that Lee is promoting is, of course, Medicaid expansion under the ACA if available to Virginia, but also Virginia single payer, a form of Virginia single payer. And and I think that's interesting. Um, You know, something that conservatives will say is that states are laboratories. And there's really no opportunity like this to show that states can... um, find a solution to health care that the federal government seems to be asleep at the wheel for. Yeah, and not only has the federal government been struggling or recently um, trying to actively make things worse. Yeah, struggling but... suggests that someone's trying to get somewhere. I don't think that's, <laughs> there's some other word for it. I don't know if we can quite get our fingers on it. Uh, but I, I do think it's, becoming more and more important for state legislatures to really take up health care in a number of ways. Another thing that's on the chopping block uh, in this current budget and under the AHCA um, is CHIP, which is health insurance for children. Uh, And that's something that I think a number of state legislatures have started to look at and something that we really need to think more about going forward. But you know, Jamie... You know, one reason that we look to the federal to, government to solve these healthcare problems is that, um, you know, they have a bigger tax base. What, what do you think that's going to look like for states when they do try to push um, 
you know, a, a single payer program. I, I saw some rumblings that California was looking at it. Yeah, and unfortunately, what I saw in California, it didn't look that great. Although some of the estimates that they made were on the high side, it would definitely be really difficult for a state on its own to implement single payer unless citizens of that state were willing to pay higher taxes in order to get that health insurance that they want. Uh, when I lived in France, I was more than happy to pay high taxes for my incredible health insurance, but that's not something that most Americans have experienced um, or would necessarily be ready to pay for. And you know, the problem to my mind about states implementing single payer is people are still paying an incredibly high tax burden to the federal government um, for federal government's priorities, which apparently are no longer health care. So, or at least not under, under the, the current um, House of Representatives. Let's get those seats flipped. So, you know, I, th that's, that's a hard sell. Um, and in general, I, I wonder if progressive values are, are a hard sell, sell in historically red districts. Um, I think so, in some ways they can be, but I don't think they have to be. Uh, obviously, there are always going to be certain issues that are controversial. I don't see abortion becoming less controversial anytime soon. But there are a lot of progressive and liberal issues that I think most resonate with most people, uh, especially, you know, things like uh, right to work, which is something that's, you know, being dealt with dealt with in the states. Uh, whether, sta whether states should have prevailing wage laws to make sure that people are paid adequately for what they do. And these are all kind of, you know, quote-unquote liberal or quote-unquote progressive issues, but I think at the same time they really resonate with real people. Yeah, so, you know, I, I think it really comes down to your sales pitch and your ability to, um, you know, convince people that, these aren't partisan issues, but they're in the best interest of Virginia. And so I think that for, for Lee and for everyone else we're talking to, you know, that's really my question for them is, what's your message? You know, we, we, may, we may agree on values, but, but how do we sell this to people? You know, many of whom are reliably Democrat, but some of whom may be swing voters or, or even historically Republican voters who may um, kind of recoil at, at certain language about, um, political issues because the media that they consume right now frames it in a way that, that makes it seem not desirable to them. Messaging is going to be one of the key things here and I'm really happy that the people we've spoken to so far seem to have really thought hard about their messaging and how they're going to connect with you know these people who they're asking to serve. So I think that um, I really hope everyone gets enjoys getting to know Lee Carter and more about District 50 and about serving in the Virginia House of Delegates. Me too. Welcome to Meet the Contenders, a podcast to introduce donors, activists, and volunteers to Democratic candidates running for offices all over the country who will need our support to win. Today, We'll be meeting Lee Carter, Democratic candidate for Virginia's 50th district for the House of Delegates. Hi, it's nice to be here. Hi, Lee. Um, so I'd like to start off just by some of the basics. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your district and your constituents? 
Sure. So I'm running uh, for Virginia's House of Delegates in the 50th District, uh, which incorporates the city of Manassas and portions of western Prince William County. Um, we've got about 85,000 people in the district, uh, and it really sort of looks like Virginia in miniature. Uh, so we've got a nice mix of, you know, blue collar workers uh, who do construction work throughout the D.C. metro area, uh, as well as, you know, some old money and some young professionals who are just getting their first start at uh, the white picket fence life. Ah, that sounds like a very interesting and diverse district. What inspired you to get involved in politics? Uh, I've always been interested in politics, uh, but I treated it sort of like a spectator sport for a while. Um, until July of 2015, uh, when I got hurt at work and I had to deal with the Virginia Workers' Compensation Commission and the experience that I had there dealing with the systems that are designed to protect Virginians when they're vulnerable, uh, really left me with a sense that no family should have to go through what I went through and it's within my power to fix it. Well, that's an inspiring story. You know, someone who's been involved in things before always knows uh, what some of the pitfalls are that you can fall into. Uh, have you been involved with any of the political organizations that kind of sprung up in the wake of the November election? Yeah, so I actually uh, declared for this race back in February of uh, 2016. So I was one of, if not the first uh, contender to step forward in Virginia for this election cycle. Nice. Uh, but since since November, uh, we have had a tremendous outpouring of support. Uh, you know, we've always been working on sort of an inside-outside strategy where we work with outside groups um, such as Our Revolution. Um, and now, you know, after the November election, uh, Indivisible Nova West and, and Swing Left and groups like that that have been tremendously helpful. I also noticed that you're a Marine Corps veteran. Would you say that your experience with the armed forces has helped shape your campaign or your political beliefs? Absolutely. Uh, you know, throughout my career, I've always tried to uh, find a way for the work that I do to be public service. Uh, so I spent five years in the Marine Corps uh, from 2006 to 2011, uh, including two deployments, one of which was to Haiti after the earthquake. Uh, and I, I saw down in Haiti uh, what government's failure to look after uh, the general well-being of the population looks like. Uh, now, granted, that is an extreme case, uh, but it really solidified me uh, on, on the fact that there is a role for government to play in making sure that people have some safety net underneath them when catastrophe strikes. So your district is inside the federal halo and has generally performed well in recent economic year recent years economically, yet even prosperous areas face growing income inequality. What role do you think state governments have in addressing income inequality and what tools are appropriate for legislatures to use? Well, you know, my district, uh, it, it, you're, you're right. It has uh, performed well in the job market uh, because there are a lot of federal workers here. Um, and, you know, the federal government has grown in recent years. But there are also uh, tens of thousands of people within my district who have been left behind in that economic growth. Uh, you know, blue collar workers, uh, people who work in the service industry who live here because it's much more affordable than living uh, closer to the Beltway. So, you know, state governments really have a tremendous role to play in making sure that uh, 
nobody who works full time lives in poverty. Uh, our current minimum wage here in Virginia is a starvation wage of seven twenty five an hour, uh, and one of the ways that we can uh, help close that income inequality gap uh, is by raising the minimum wage here in Virginia to a living wage of $15 an hour indexed for inflation. Uh, there are other things that we can do on top of that, but that is uh, definitely a good starting spot. Have you talked to small business owners in your district about a $15 minimum wage and have you already heard any pushback? There is some reticence uh, to that, but one thing that really helps is when people realize uh, that the best thing for a small business is having customers with money in their pockets. You know, if people are, are working 60, 70, 80 hours a week uh, just to pay the bills, not only are they unable to go shopping because they don't have the time, they also don't have the money. Uh, so, you know, if you're able to get more money into the hands of those small businesses customers, then it's going to be much more beneficial to those small businesses in the long run. Besides uh, increasing the minimum wage, are there any other worker protection issues that you think Virginia hasn't resolved yet? Absolutely. As I said earlier, uh, you know, this campaign was uh, really inspired by a workplace injury. Uh, so one of the things that we need to do is make sure that uh, those hundreds of thousands of Virginians who currently do work full time, but are one uh, injury or illness away from disaster, get the protection that they need. Uh, so we can expand Virginia's workers' compensation system to cover people uh, in in a wider variety of workplace injury scenarios uh, to make sure that if they do get hurt at work uh, and they're unable to continue working, that they don't also end up uh, thousands of dollars in debt. Something else that holds back Virginia workers is lack of access to paid maternity leave or affordable childcare. Affordable childcare is absolutely a huge problem for families in Northern Virginia where childcare is at some of the most expensive rates in the country. Do you have any legislative agenda for that? Absolutely. You know, these are these are all areas uh, where it's sort of common sense if you actually sit down and think about it, uh, that, you know, people who work 60, 70, 80 hours a week, their lives don't stop just because they have to work to, to pay the rent. So, you know, folks who have kids and are working you know, two and three full-time jobs, they have to spend an inordinate amount of their income on childcare expenses just to be able to go back to work. So that is absolutely vital to making sure uh, that Virginia's workers are able uh, to work and not live in poverty. So what do solutions look like coming from the state government when it comes to affordable childcare? Uh, I think the, the obvious starting spot uh, would be universal pre-K here in Virginia. Uh, now, there are some municipalities that don't even have universal kindergarten. So we need to make sure that the public school systems uh, are adequately funded and are tasked with uh, the, the mission of providing a good, solid, full-day education uh, to all four- and five-year-olds in the Commonwealth of Virginia. One issue that's very related to income inequality, and that's a big topic right now, is health care. The failure of the Virginia legislature to expand Medicaid stopped 3,100 people in your district from getting access to health care. What's your strategy to helping pass this legislation in the future? 
Uh, well, you know, the ability to expand Medicaid uh, is something that we need to use while it's on the table. Uh, but, you know, even if the federal government takes it off the table in the future, Virginia really needs to step forward uh, and have legislators who have the political courage to stand up and say, it doesn't matter what the federal government is doing. Uh, we're going to pick up the slack and we are going to make sure that not only do the hundreds of thousands of Virginians who don't have health care coverage right now get health care coverage, but also uh, that we're controlling costs and making sure that the hundreds of thousands of Virginians who have coverage but can't afford to use it get coverage that they can afford to use. So in addition to closing the Medicaid gap, what else do you think the state legislature can do to help people who are struggling to get access to affordable health care? Ideally, uh, what I'll be fighting for uh, is state-level single-payer health care. You know, health care is a human right. Uh, you hear a lot about the health care market, uh, but no market functions with coercion that's implied in its use. So in healthcare, you know, you can't really be an informed consumer if you're having a heart attack. You can't shop around for an ambulance that's going to give you a good deal when you're unconscious. So we need to make sure that we actually provide health care as a human right to all of Virginia's residents. Virginia recently saw the expansion of the Silver Line, among other transportation projects, but congestion still makes commutes incredibly difficult for Virginia workers. Tell us about your vision for addressing the district's transportation concerns. You know, when it comes to traffic congestion, there are only three options for alleviating it. Uh, you can make more road, you can get cars off the road, or you can get people into more dense transportation options. So we've seen a lot of examples of what happens if you just continually build more and more road. You end up with Los Angeles, or you end up with San Francisco, or you end up with Dallas, Texas. I would argue six... that you would end up with Northern Virginia. Well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, you end up with these these scenarios where you have six, seven, eight lanes of traffic at a standstill, uh, and you really need to think past the build more road solution uh, because it's temporary. You know, it's putting a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. Uh, so we need to build a sustainable system uh, where people have the option to live closer to where they work and where they have mass transit options so they don't have to be on the road, jamming up the roadways for those people that can't avoid it. So I have connections to Great Falls, um, and one of the things that the local government has done is prevent dense housing. And despite the fact that the Silver Line now goes out that way, people still can't get into work quickly because the Silver Line really hasn't met the need. And also the local housing restrictions are specifically explicitly designed to prevent dense housing. What can the state government do to improve the situation? Uh, when it comes to uh, zoning for new residential development, you know, that is something that's left up to the municipalities. Um, but we can definitely provide incentives uh, for those municipalities to look at more dense options, um, to look at building new communities that are more like Reston, uh, which was planned to be uh, a high density walkable uh community from day one. Uh, and we can, you know, provide ways for the municipalities 
to, to plan for that high density um, and to plan around walkability and people living close to work and uh, having availability of mass transit options. To switch gears a little bit here, like many other states, Virginia has taken some controversial approaches to redrawing district lines. What solutions do you think will help promote fair redistricting in Virginia? There were a lot of options that were presented over the last few years to the General Assembly uh, to to get us towards a system uh, where people are picking their delegates rather than delegates picking their voters. Unfortunately, all of those were rejected uh, by the House Privileges and Elections Committee, which my opponent actually sits on. So, you know, the mildest of these would be simply making it illegal for delegates and senators to use partisan effect as uh, a criteria for redistricting. I mean, plain and simple, you know, you cannot state that your goal is incumbent protection and protecting your party. I think that's a very common sense thing that everybody can agree should be a law here in Virginia. Unfortunately, it's not uh, because the very people that are protected by that partisan gerrymandering are the people who would have to agree to removing it. So, you know, redistricting reform is one of those issues where we're just going to have to change who's in those seats before we can change the way the seats are drawn. Yeah, I feel like redistricting is one of partisan redistricting is one of those issues where the people are ahead of the politicians in the courts. <laughs> so uh, I see you support criminal justice reform and mass incarceration is something that I really care a lot about trying to end. As I'm sure you know, most prisoners are actually incarcerated at the state level or local level, not on the federal level. So the state legislature is a very important place for criminal justice reforms. What do you think are the most important reforms that the Virginia legislature could make? You know, Virginia's criminal justice system is one where just being poor is heavily criminalized. So there are plenty of examples where uh, an unpaid DMV fine uh, or, uh, you know, an unpaid court fine results in the revocation of somebody's license. And then you really can't uh, get to work to pay the fines that got your license revoked in the first place. So you have to resort to more under the table uh, means more, you know, moral and legal gray areas just to make ends meet. And that puts you in jeopardy of getting uh, into the criminal justice system uh, that we think of, you know, the actual handcuffs and, and incarceration system. Uh, there, there are many, many ways in which people get put into the criminal justice system here in Virginia uh, that are just totally egregious. Uh, you know, the, the most egregious that I can think of is those court fines. Um, but there's also the fact that Virginia has one of the lowest felony theft thresholds in the nation. Uh, it's currently $200. So if you snatch somebody's iPhone, you get a felony that follows you around for the rest of your life. So we need to make sure that our criminal justice system here in Virginia is not one that's aimed at keeping prison beds full uh, and keeping profits up for you know our one private for-profit prison and for the contractors who service our public prisons, but make sure that it's one that actually serves public safety. 
It sounds like Virginia is experiencing a lot of the same problems as West Virginia and a lot of other states around the country, uh, particularly with regard to the fact that we still criminalize being poor at a certain level. Last year, the governor restored the voting rights of over 13,000 formerly incarcerated people. Do you support that decision? Absolutely. Once somebody served their time, there's no reason to keep them disenfranchised from the political process. Virginia has some of the country's best public schools and also some of the worst. You have Thomas Jefferson in Northern Virginia. That's by many rankings the best private public high school in the country. And in other districts, the school quality is disappointing. And, and also many schools are still effectively racially segregated. What solutions would you propose to achieve more equity in access to high quality public education in the K through 12 system? This is one of those areas uh, where people have to understand that uh, a member of the House of Delegates, even though they represent 85,000 people, their votes have an impact on eight and a half million people. Uh, so what we see in Virginia with the K through 12 education system is one in which the property tax base dictates the quality of the schools, and then the quality of the schools dictate the property tax base. So you end up um, either in a positive reinforcement loop uh, in a high income area with good schools or a negative reinforcement loop in a low income area uh, with poor schools. And, you know, that's something that happens in cities and also in rural areas, uh, for example, in southwest Virginia. So we really need to think outside of the box and make sure that we're, first of all, not using funding as a weapon to punish poor performing schools, but also uh, to break free from this model that has the property tax base as the primary source of funding for schools. Uh, you know, we need to look at a model where the needs of the school are the primary determinant of that school's funding. That's the only way that we're going to be able to create a more equitable K-12 education system that works for all Virginia families. Can you point to any example of a state that successfully implemented a, a system like that where property taxes don't directly contribute to the local neighborhood schools? Uh, well, you know, the states are the laboratories of democracy. Uh, so this would be an area where I believe we would be blazing new ground. And... I absolutely understand what makes that approach appealing, but I also think that part of the reason that it maybe hasn't been implemented anywhere that I'm aware of, but certainly hasn't taken off, is that there's a lot of pushback from parents. What would you tell parents to help them get over their initial aversion to seeing that money go back to the state and be redistributed according to need? Uh, you know, this this sort of system would not be one that tells the, the municipality that they can't provide additional funding. Uh, so, you know, those high income areas would still be able to provide uh, some additional above a certain baseline. Uh, but this is just making sure that every school in Virginia is one that does have that minimum baseline uh, of resources to provide an acceptable education to all families in Virginia. We had the chance to talk to Sheila Bynum-Coleman, who's also running for the House of Delegates, about the role of law enforcement in schools. Would you support legislation to address the school-to-prison pipeline? And if so, what solutions would you like to see be implemented? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the biggest things that we've seen recently uh, is, is news stories about um, high school students who have a disciplinary problem in class and they end up in the custody of the school resource officer who then introduces them into the criminal justice system. Uh, so we need to make sure that the school resource officers are there uh, as a community outreach tool, uh, you know, who uh, start a good relationship between the students and law enforcement uh, and not as uh, a punishment tool. Uh, you know, we need to make sure that school administrators and, and teachers have the resources available to deal with disciplinary problems at their own level without getting law enforcement involved whenever possible. Another issue facing students in schools is a lack of equity when it comes to protecting the rights of LGBT students. What would you like to see the state do to make sure that LGBT students are also getting an appropriate education? We need to make sure that uh, school districts throughout the Commonwealth are adopting adequate non-discrimination policies. This is actually a fight that we've had in my district. Uh, you know, last year, the Prince William County School Board uh, took up a measure to update their non-discrimination policy to include sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, unfortunately, that was tabled, uh, and that discussion will be picked up again, I believe, next month. Uh, but it really just went to show that in a lot of cases, the public sector is behind the private sector when it comes to non-discrimination. You know, the largest employers in Virginia already have non-discrimination policies that include sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, the most absurd example of this is the fact that we're behind Comcast on adopting uh, non-discrimination policies that cover everyone regardless of who they love. So we need to make sure that not only are students protected from discrimination, uh, but also that our teachers can no longer be fired based on their sexual orientation or gender identity, uh, because, you know, we're only going to lose out on the incredible talents that LGBT families uh, can bring to our Commonwealth if we don't provide a school system that educates and employs people regardless of their sexual orientation and gender identity. So economic inequality is something we've talked a bit about already, and one thing that contributes heavily to income inequality for many women and families is that they don't have access to reproductive health care. In state legislatures in particular, there have been increasing restrictions on birth control access and even criminalization of abortion. Where do you stand on these issues? Virginia has been one of the more egregious in that regard. Uh, you know, the, the district that neighbors me to the north, the 13th district, uh, is the home of Bob Marshall, who has been the, the biggest driver of uh, anti-choice legislation here in Virginia. Uh, so we need to make sure that we recognize, uh, you know, reproductive health care is a decision that should be made between uh, a family and their doctor, and that the government should have no part in that beyond making sure that it's safe and available. And on a related issue, another thing that we hear a lot of talk about on both the national level and I think almost everywhere on the state and local level is whether Planned Parenthood should be quote unquote defunded, which as we know actually means that Planned Parenthood would no longer be reimbursed for providing healthcare services. 
Do you have a stance on this debate? Planned Parenthood is one of the largest providers of preventive health services and cancer screenings throughout the nation. Uh, So any attack on Planned Parenthood is solely uh, politically motivated and has no business in our government. I definitely agree with you there, but I expect that your opponent will beat this drum because it's consistently helped Republicans stay in office. Do you have any message for people who are concerned about access to abortion and want to limit it? Uh, you know, the, the best thing that we can do uh, to make sure that abortions are rare uh, is providing preventive health services. Uh, you know, we've seen countless examples of governments making, uh, making contraceptives cheaper and more available uh, to low-income families and having a corresponding reduction in unwanted pregnancies and teen pregnancies. Uh, And those two things are the biggest driver of abortion rates. So for people who are against abortion uh, totally, they need to think about whether they want to uh, reduce the number of abortions or whether they want to just punish people for having them. Because if they want to reduce the number of them, they should really invest in um, in preventive health care services and contraceptive coverage. In the last election, the incumbent Republican candidate scored almost 20% more votes than the Democrat. These are some pretty tough odds. What resources and strategies are you planning to use to win? Uh, well, you know, 2017 is a completely different year from any we've ever seen. Uh, we've got people who are fired up. They're they're motivated. Uh, you know, they've seen the failure of the top down political strategy uh, that unfortunately the Democratic Party has employed for a very long time. And they're ready to start from the grassroots and get involved in local campaigns and make sure that the down ballot races are no longer an afterthought. Uh, so with that energy and that enthusiasm, we're going to go out there and we're going to knock on tens of thousands of doors and we're going to get our message out to people that there is a viable alternative uh, vision for what Virginia should look like. Uh, you know, it's not just a battle of keeping things the same versus getting worse. Um, you know, we can actually put forward positive policy change ideas uh, that will make a real impact in people's lives so that even those people who are disillusioned with the way things have been going have something to look forward to and have a reason to come out and vote. And when you're out there in the field speaking to people, you're going to have to speak to constituents who likely supported the incumbent in previous races. What is your message to them? My message to them uh, is to take stock of the way things have gone in the last 10 years since he's been in office. You know, if they feel that the work that he's done has made their lives better, then by all means, they're welcome to continue supporting him. Uh, But if their life has not gotten appreciably better or has gotten worse, uh, then I would invite them to get past their their hangups based on, you know, the letter after our names and actually think about how the policies that we're espousing would impact their lives. And if the policies that I'm putting forward would make their lives better, then I welcome their support regardless of who they've supported in the past. Before we get to our closing here, is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners about yourself or your campaign? Yeah, the biggest thing to remember about me is that I'm a Marine. And the thing that Marines love more than anything else is a good fight for a good reason. 
you know, we've picked a really big fight, perhaps the biggest fight that there is to have in Virginia in taking on uh, the Republican majority whip. But it's a fight that we've been fighting for over a year now that we're going to continue to fight until November. Uh, and then, you know, once November 7th has passed and we've hopefully uh, moved on to Richmond, then I'm going to continue fighting for working families here in Virginia, regardless of what district they live in uh, and, you know, regardless of what party they're in, just to make sure that people can live a life uh, that is not one where they're trapped in poverty, that's not one where they're trapped in the criminal justice system, uh, where they have the freedom uh, to dictate the way they want to live their own life uh, without being pinned down by the way things have been run before. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. And I'd like to close by asking you where our listeners should go to learn more about you and your campaign. Well, you can go to my website, which is at www.carter4virginia.com, uh, or you can check me out on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash Lee Carter VA, or on Twitter at Carter4VA. That's F-O-R. Perfect. Thank you. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today. And thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate it. It's been wonderful.